And we begin with Exodus 32, and we read verses 1 to 10, and then we move on to 34 and read 1 to 14. So first, Exodus 32, verses 1 to 10. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered round Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Now over the leaf to page to chapter 34. The Lord said to Moses, "Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write them, write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up to Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you." or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. O Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, he said, then let the Lord go with us. 
Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Well, thank you, Donald. Um, let me open in prayer. Lord Jesus, we pray that your eternal and everlasting word would speak into our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I only have uh, three chapters of Exodus to preach on today. Uh, So it's going to be fast and it's going to be quick. And I'm going to focus on just one thing. Our first reading, the beginning of chapter 32, starts with a brief mention of the delay of Moses' return down the mountain... And then we are catapulted into an act that threatens to completely unravel all of God's plan. It is an act of rebellion of the very worst sort. And it's interesting to read that there is no deliberation. There appears to be no great discussion, no fomenting of unrest. The people are concerned that Moses is delayed and they just go to Aaron to demand him to make them new gods to take the place of the God who seems to have disappeared along with Moses. Now let's be absolutely clear, this amounts to an attempt to undo all that God has put in place. We read in Genesis that God made humankind for a relationship, to be in a relationship with him, so that we could be his people And he would be our God. And of course the Israelites were his chosen people. Special to him beyond all measure. This is why the first commandment is so totally unambiguous. You shall have no other gods but me. Is it therefore so surprising that we read in our passage of God's fury and anger burning against the Israelites? Now, I think we can look at this story and be flabbergasted at how this stiff-necked people, having seen God's miraculous works, having walked through what I assume would be quite a sort of soggy bottom of the Red Sea with the seas held up on either side, one could be flabbergasted at how short-sighted they are and how short their memories are. But I wonder if our behavior today is any different. Now, what is the sin 
that that passage, the first passage we had read to us, refers to. Well, it's idolatry, the sin of idolatry. It's the sin of worshipping a God other than the one God. But does this sin concern us today, or was it just something that happened thousands of years ago? Well, I'm sure we don't go around... uh, buying things and putting them in our sitting room and bowing down and worshipping to them. I mean, we do see, perhaps you guys don't, but um, perhaps the younger generation does watch TV and they watch something called Pop Idol. But actually, I'm afraid the sad reality is in our day, idolatry is rampant. It stalks all our lives. A great biblical counselor said that idolatry is by far the most frequently discussed problem in the scriptures. And this morning, we've had read to us probably the best known example in scripture, the worshipping of the golden calf. So let's define idolatry and where better than to look other than in scripture. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. That is the biblical definition of idolatry, and of course it's precisely what we see happening in our passage. Worship is living to the glory of God the creator. Idolatry is living for the glory of creation. And when I mean creation, when I say creation, I mean anything that uh, is or can be made. We were created to worship God and to enjoy and steward his creation. By definition, idolatry is when our worship is inverted. Something uh, created is deified. Creation is glorified. Something is put in the place of the creator. And it can become the source of our identity. It could become the source of our joy, the source of our affection, the object of our affection. It literally becomes the object of our worship. And here is the tricky part that is at the very center of our challenge this morning. I'm grateful to an American pastor and preacher called Mark Driscoll uh, for opening my eyes to this in a fresh way. He says, most of the times, the things we worship are not bad. They are, in fact, things that are good. But what happens, as he says, is we take good things, we make them God things, and then they become bad things. In addition, I think most people can be blind to their idolatry. I don't think we are the victims. I think that if we are filled with the Holy Spirit, in a sense we choose just to close our eyes. We've chosen not to see our idolatry. Martin Luther, in his commentary on the Ten Commandments, goes as far as to say that all issues come down to the issue of worship. In the first commandment, we're told that there is one God and we are told to worship that God alone. 
Luther rightly said that if you obey the first commandment, you won't violate the rest. You won't commit adultery if there's one God in your life and you are worshipping him alone. You won't steal if there's one God in your life if you are worshipping him alone. You won't be worshipping sex. You won't be worshipping image. You won't be worshipping money. You won't need to be lying because you won't be worshipping your reputation because we most often lie in order to make ourselves better than we really are. Luther's keen insights still ring profoundly true. So let me say something on idols. Well, they present themselves as something that they are not. Remember, Paul says that they exchange the truth of God for a lie. Jesus says in John 8, 44, that Satan is a liar and the father of all lies. Idolatry is in varying ways the lie that someone or something is really able to function as God. So here are some of those lies that idols will tell you. Some idols will lie to you by pretending that they are a savior. Perhaps not as an ultimate savior, but certainly as a functional savior. So for the woman who takes a good thing, like wanting to be a mother, and of course wanting to be a mother is a really, really good thing, it becomes for her a God thing. She deifies her desire, and then a baby for her becomes a savior. It saves her from the hell of motherlessness. It delivers her into her heavenly kingdom of motherhood. Now, the child itself is not a bad thing. It's a fantastic thing. It's a gift from God. But if you're not careful, if it takes over your life, it can also be an idol. The single man who longs to have a wife has a good desire. He who finds a wife finds what is good. That's what Proverbs tells us. But if he deifies marriage, if he deifies husbandry, if he deifies a bride, his singleness is his hell, marriage is his heaven, and his saviour is a woman. He worships her. And sometimes an idol can lie to you by telling you it can mediate between you and God. Paul tells Timothy that there is only one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. But what tends to happen when an idol lies is it tries to convince us that something other than Jesus can mediate between us and God, can reconcile us to God, can draw us closer to God, and can keep us closer to God. There are some who will want to speak to the priest before they want to talk to God because he is their functional mediator. He is the holy man of God. He is closer to God. They think, if I could get a meeting with a priest, I could get closer to God because the priest is closer to God than I am. Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, he says that those who are believers have the same standing in faith 
as the apostles. Now, don't get me wrong, priests can do all sorts of helpful things. But the point I'm trying to make is that people can turn to the priest first before turning to God. The priest becomes the functional mediator. Some leaders, this may be uncomfortable for any church leaders here, but some of us might admit to quite liking it when people come up to us at the end of a service and which we haven't preached or at or we haven't been leading in. They come up to us and they say, you know, it wasn't that good this morning. Yeah, it wasn't that, wasn't that good. You know, the worship wasn't that great. The, the preaching wasn't that good. And, you know, I, 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 didn't, I couldn't really worship God today. The worship wasn't great because you weren't there. This is despite the Holy Spirit being here. It's like they're saying it wasn't that great because the real mediator couldn't make it. And for some, what passes as worship music war, and it's gone very quiet on that front, I'm glad to say, since Pete arrived, is really idolatry war because when people are accustomed to singing certain songs or doing a certain liturgy and then you change them or you take them away they can react in a violent way because they think that those songs that with which they're used to mediate between them and God we didn't sing such and such a song we didn't we didn't do this we didn't do that I just I can't worship God They've taken a good thing, worship music, made it a God thing, which has then made it a bad thing. We have to be clear, the church doesn't mediate, the clergy do not mediate, the music does not mediate. Idols will lie, idols will present themselves as functional saviors. They will tell you, they will lie to you and tell you that they can mediate and get you closer to God. One of the reasons idols are so enticing is because they give you identity. By, identif- by identity, I mean they can help us define who we are. Now, it's not a bad thing to be a husband. It's not a bad thing to be a father. It's not a bad thing to be a pop star. But you can take a good thing, you can make it a God thing, and it becomes a bad thing. Identity. It's not a bad thing for a man at work to be very important and very powerful. It's a good thing. But if his identity is in, I'm an important and powerful person, up to whom everybody looks and gazes at with awe and admiration, then idolatry is going on in something that otherwise is really good. A man wanting to be good at his job. I'm finding this uh, at the moment very, it's a very personal thing for, the, thing for me at the moment, my identity. I'm applying for these jobs and I have to imagine myself in these places. And it takes me out of my identity of being at St. Andrew's Church, which is my comfort zone. It's not comfortable all the time but it is my comfort zone I love it here I love you all this is you are my identity people come up to me and they thank me and um, they say they respect me and you know it's a great feeling being here at St Andrews 
and I'm grappling with this issue of what my, where, where do I look to, who do I look to for my identity as I go into a church which may, may appoint me but may not, you know, may appoint me after an argument, may appoint me even though they don't particularly like some bits about me. It's a really tough call for me at the moment and this is so helpful to me because it's telling me I'm I'm idolizing the identity I have here in St. Andrew's Church, being part of the staff on this amazing flagship evangelical church. It's interesting that some people who seem to be worshippers of God, they seem to be worshippers of God until that which defines their identity is removed or altered. They can fall apart. They can hate God. Tim Keller talks about this in his book, The Reason for God. He uses the example, you could use many other examples, but he uses the example of a mother who, whose identity, you know, quite understandably, quite innocently, her identity is in being a mother. Her kids grow up, they all leave home, and she's devastated. She doesn't know what to do with herself. Her whole life caves in around her. Her faith, she falls away from Christ. And it's because her idols have gone away. Her identity has been taken away from her. Idolatry. It can be obvious. We, you know, we can look through our bank statements. We can get a, a, a colored highlighting pen. We can highlight all the bits on our credit card statements and our bank statements, which aren't for our tithing, our, our, our charitable giving, and our, you know, the everyday essentials, perhaps school fees, stuff like that. And then we can look at the rest and we can see what our idols are in our life. We could perhaps do the same sort of exercise with our diaries. What are we spending our time on? What are, we, you know, are we just chilling out and vegetating in front of rubbish TV every evening? I don't know. What are we doing with our time? Those are the kind of the, the obvious idolatries that can go on in our lives. But I think that the, the danger of this, and this I've, I've had my eyes opened, is that most often it isn't obvious what our idols are. Most often the idols are good things which have been made God things, which have made them bad things. We read about in our scripture that the Israelites paid a dreadful price for their idolatry. Moses uses the Levites to go and slaughter 3,000 men, presumably the, the, those who were involved in the golden calf incident. And then God sends a plague. We don't know how many died in that plague, though. Let's not fall into the same trap. Let's not let's make sure we worship the one true God and none others. Let's not look to anyone else, anything else that might lie to us and promise to offer to mediate between us and God when only the man Christ Jesus can. Let's live our life anchored and rooted in God so that when worldly props are knocked away. So it could be the props of children when they grow up and leave home. For me, it's the prop of St. Andrew's Church. When they're knocked away, we're left standing firm. Let's find our true identity as children of God's, 
But what if we do slip, as we surely will, into some form of idolatry? What if our relationship with God is broken? Well, I hope we will seek restoration. I know anyone in a relationship will know that when hurt is caused, what you want more than anything else is you want that, that broken relationship restored. I know when I'm cross with my kids and I raise my voice and I threaten to take away some toy or something like that, and, I, and they're on the floor, tears. They don't like to see me angry because I, I get quite, quite angry when I'm angry. I, I think I'm probably quite scary. And that's part of my anger, actually is they're on the floor crying, but at the same time their arms are outstretched to me. They want, they, they know that our relationship is broken at that moment, and they want it restored. Even this scary big man who's just given them a rollicking, they want a hug from him. I let them sweat a bit, and then I give them a hug. And we read that God will clearly forgive us. We see that from what he says in chapter 34. The Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. The God we worship is the restoring God, a pure and perfect God, who demands that judgment be made, but also who restores relationships. And in our warped, broken, and fractured world, the one thing people yearn for more than anything else is for the restoration of relationships. When you look at everything that goes wrong, all the the brokenness in our society, you don't need to be a sociologist To understand that it all comes from the broken relationship. No marriage. Multiple parents. All the breakdown of the family. It's all to do with broken relationships. And of course, a lack of relationship with our Savior God. The Israelites had Moses. But the great news is we have someone to mediate for us. Who is infinitely more powerful. Infinitely more loving. We have the one true mediator, Jesus Christ, by whom and through whom our relationship with God can be restored as we seek his forgiveness through repentance and confession. Rebellion, mediation, restoration. That's what these three chapters in Exodus teach us. And isn't it the same for us today? We live in a perpetual state of rebellion. But the great news is, is the ultimate mediator intercedes on our behalf with God the Father, allowing our relationship to be restored. The amazing news is that when we sin, unlike the Israelites who paid for it in their own blood, the one true sacrifice has been made on the cross at Calvary. Our sins have been washed clean by the Lamb's blood. He paid the price once and for all for our sins. Yes, we may need to live with the consequences of our sin, but our relationship with God can be restored through the cross. 
our rebellion, Christ's mediation, God's forgiveness and the restoration of our relationship with Him, all through Jesus Christ and the cross and that empty grave. Amen.